Yeah, we did not because you know since they were part of with the, they were in probation and all that with the with the juveniles, and we didn't really have anything to do with them unless we were investigating them. And I was out of there pretty you know pretty shortly after that, but never you know not able to track you know whether that was effective or not. Just don't know. But I I do know just watching them. Hey. Well, let me ask you: after going through that, did you think about breaking the law after that? <laughs> No, 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 I'm good. <laughs> nope. You know, I thought back to all the things I did as a juvie, you know, that might have been, you know, eh, and I'm like, yeah, I think I went the right, I think I went the right direction. I I the right. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you said you, you did that, you hurried because you had to, you know, you had paperwork to do at Pittsburgh. So how long did it take you from the time you applied to the time you got on Pittsburgh PD? I would say it probably took probably close to a, about a year. Almost like with DEA. DEA was very methodical, very slow, and very good with the way that they hired you. But Pittsburgh Police, yeah. But when it happened, it happened in a whirlwind. I waited about a year. When I did the, when I went to take the test at Pittsburgh, I drove all the way from over in Western Ohio, so about a five-hour drive. Uh, showed up, they had it at the convention center. You know, going back to when we we're talking about how popular policing was, how difficult it was to break in. Um, went to go take the the test. It was at the convention center. It looked like a like a Van Halen concert in 1984. Uh, wow. it, there must've been probably close to, I think they said 18,000 people for 200 jobs. So, Holy I mean, I took the test and didn't think anything was ever going to happen with that many and being an out of towner. Cause you know, there's a little bit of nepotism in some of those back East Souths, but yeah, about a, about a year, but boy, I'll tell you that you could tell they had a, they had a, they had a protocol in place to keep the out of towners out and to keep the, either the people who knew people inside or whatever, or to keep Pittsburghers, Pittsburghers. Uh, the gal calls me from Pittsburgh out of the clear blue and she goes, uh, you're considered for the job. You have two and a half days to move here. And I'm all the way over by the Michigan border working you know, over there. And uh, I found out later on this gal had some had some issues with people like with anyway. Uh, yeah. So she had an issue with uh, with out of towners and some other things. She's been on the racist side. Let's go ahead and say it. What it is. This guy was 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 very racist. And uh, but yeah, she said, you have two and a half days to get here. And she says, this is what you have to have. Now, I'm in Ohio. You have to have a driver's license, proof of uh, proof of residency, like a like a, uh, a lease or a, or a whatever. Um, you have to have a, a telephone uh, subscribed in your name and power, and you have two and a half days to do it. And so, I mean, yeah. but luckily for me, my, I had my, my secret weapon was my mom and dad lived within an hour of Pittsburgh. So I'm back that night. The next day we head up there, and luckily mom and dad were Uber before Uber was cool. They drove me all around Pittsburgh. I Thank God I passed the test on the, fir- the first try and didn't screw up any of the, any of the questions and, and what have you. But I, pa- I passed the driver's license test, so I got my PA driver's license. Uh, end up finding an apartment, did everything in one day, Wow! Uh, end up having everything I needed in, in one day. And I, I totally baffled her. I could tell when I showed up at the public safety building with all my, all my stuff, all my gear, you could tell she's very disappointed. Her name was, her name was cookie. Anyway. Yeah. I showed up at, uh, and, uh, and had it all. And so that's how it all went out. And it kind of, it kind of bolstered what I thought too, when I went to the Academy, because when you walk through the door of the Pittsburgh police Academy, it's also very old. I mean, it smells like history when you walk in there, um, old, old building, uh, walked in and there's this old disgruntled. This is my first, this is my, this is my indoctrination into Pittsburgh police. I walk into the, into the building and you smell that history. I walk in and there's this old pissed off cop sitting there. And he's like one of those, like the, the, like the, the big city old pissed off, stereotype cops he's got an unlit cigar chomped in his mouth uh and whatever and he was very i remember he was very voluminous big guy sitting there and just angry looking and he had the tea sitting at a table there was a container over here with nightsticks and a smaller container on the table with blackjacks and for if you're not familiar with blackjacks for people out there they were an impact weapon that was your backup if you if you did if you couldn't use your full-size nightstick or once they went to ask the expandable batons but a uh, but a blackjack was basically a a leather wrapped about a foot long. Um, it had a steel spring in the middle wrapped in leather. 
uh, had a handle and had a lead ball also wrapped in leather on the end. It's kind of springy. You could kind of give it some spring. And it was meant for close quarter stuff. You could, and anyway, but yeah, so it was like an old 19, like a 1900 Keystone Cops blackjack nightstick and this pissed off old cop sitting there. And he go, he says, name, sign here, get downstairs and get your uniform. And, and he, and like I said, there was no friendliness. So I go down, I get into the locker room and the first thing somebody said, and this is the first thing in Pittsburgh that anybody said to me from the, from the PD, I get down there and one of the other new recruits looks over at me and he goes, so who do you know? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm just that token out of town, I'm that token out of town kid and whatever. But I mean, it was, that was really not a big deal. The rest of it wasn't nepotism or anything. That was the first thing it said, but you could see a, a degree of people that were there that had been, you know, that were like legacies or they yeah. had known somebody, but for the most part, it was a bunch of good guys and gals. And that carried on all through Pittsburgh. You know, I, I, I think we're, I think a lot of the times for, for us, you know, we're our own best critics when it comes to not wanting a dirty cop, not wanting a bad cop, not even somebody that, you know, is even halfway like uh, like doesn't treat people the right way and whatever. I mean, so, I mean, most most of us are our own worst, our own best critics. And I can honestly say, like with Pittsburgh police, and I work the second worst part of Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh's north side. It's called zone one. But all through my career in Pittsburgh, I met like maybe maybe two or three guys that I'm like, oh, boy, I wouldn't want to work with that fella. But that's out of hundreds of people. And, and we'd jump zones and go over to their zones and help them out. You know, we'd work special details like events uh, and work with detectives. But, uh, but yeah, no, my experience for the rest of the time with Pittsburgh was very, very good. It was truly a, a, you know, a, a family. One of the biggest problems we had when you'd have a serious call where you had to call back up, like you had a gunfight going on or you had like a really serious foot chase. One of the biggest problems was trying to sort out who all had showed up at your scene when you write a report. <laughs> Because, you know, Pittsburgh had a whole bunch of agencies going on that were kind of like on top of each other. And even though Pittsburgh police was the clearinghouse for like a like a robbery or a shooting or what have you, um, you know, we had Allegheny uh, County Police, Port Authority Police, Sheriff, school, and they could come back you up if, if necessary. And so it just looked like a, a carnival if you had like a really serious call. And so and my experience was, though, that it was that you work, the people you work with were, were unbelievable. Yeah, never, never had a bad experience in the field. Very lucky. Well, yeah, you had a bad experience in the field, weren't you? Didn't you tell us something about two weeks after you got released, you're out on your own? Didn't something happen? So I guess we'll tell we'll tell a couple of these uh, for the big. So for the first two weeks in Pittsburgh, when you get out, they didn't have an FT a field training officer program. When I tell people that, even fifteen. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I'd tell people, yeah, Pittsburgh didn't have a field training officer program. You'd graduate after your six-month academy, and they're like, here's your badge, kid. Go out and do good. And that was the way they did wow. it. Wow. Uh, so you had no FTO. You you're, you're got a badge and a gun. Go get them, Tiger. Uh, but what they did do for your first two weeks is, for familiarization, they would put you in all the different they, – they don't call them precincts in Pittsburgh. They're called zones. But they would put you in a different zone in Pittsburgh for like a three day period. And that way for during the two weeks, you could experience every one of those zones, know where their stations are, if there's a court, whatever you need to know about. And, and you'd also do patrol work with, the, with another officer. And uh, yeah, so my first week on the job, I mean, so many things happened in one and a half weeks. It kind of like shows you the qu quantity over quality when it comes to, you know, street law enforcement in a big city. But uh, I remember my very first call for service I was in zone two, which is our downtown area. So that's the big sprawling downtown and then the Hill district. Um, and I'm, I, my first, my first partner, he was an older guy, uh, a little bit gruff and what have you. You can tell he's kind of like, he's not real happy being saddled up, you know, with the rookie, but that's what he had to do. And it was nine o'clock or eight thirty, nine o'clock in the morning. And they get a call of an unknown disturbance from point state park, uh, point state park, um, is, uh, where if you look at Pittsburgh proper, 
you have two rivers called the Monongahela and the Allegheny River. They flow together and form the Ohio River. Well, right there where that point is, um, they have a really, really nice park right there. It's huge, absolutely huge. But nothing ever happens there, usually, because you can't escape. It'd be like Snake Plissken trying to get out of New York or whatever. You can't get out of there. So it's unusual to have that call. So we we get down there. We just drive right through the park in the patrol car, right down through the green lines. We get down to where the where the problem was. It was a park bench. And, and there were several business people, couple couple ladies, couple guys dressed very nice. And they're kind of standing back just like watching this poor thing unfold. It looked like a, it was a homeless guy. He had that Obi-Wan Kenobi homeless look to him with all the like multiple layers of clothes where you can't really tell what's going on. And so he's laying on the, I don't know if it's a he, but found out later on, the hard way. We found out the hard way. It was he. Uh, yeah. So he's laying on the park bench and he's kind of like in the fetal position, but you can't see anything but like that Obi-Wan Kenobi rap going on. Nothing. Can't see hands, but he's in, conv- it looks like to me as a young, brand new, fresh out of the box, fresh faced kid, I'm thinking this guy is going into convulsions. Uh, and he, and he's making the sound that's like, I mean, he's making these like animalistic sounds. He's in convulsions. And so I'm just kind of like, huh? And this cop, without skipping a beat that I'm with, old timer guy, he he gets out his big old micardonite stick. He goes over in front of all these business people, takes it and just jams it right into the area that's probably going to be this guy's sternum or you know ribs or or stomach or whatever. And just he doesn't hit him with it. He just sticks it in there to give him a little you know hey prod. He sticks it. Well, the guy never misses a beat. He he stops. Well, he does. He stops for like maybe a second. Like he stops the convulsing and the gurgling sounds, and then. And then uh, he goes right back at it again, into the convulsions. And I'm like, oh, man, it's my first, this is like my first day. And uh, this is going on. And these business people are like all shocked. They're like, oh, my God, you know, because of the nightstick. And uh, the cop, my cop, he goes, dirt and jams the guy again. He goes, he goes, hey, I said, get the F out of here right now. And the guy stops making the gurgling sounds and then sits up. And now you can see it's a dude, but he's dirty. His face is really, really dirty. And his robes and whatever he had going on comes open. And there's no, there's no easy way to put this. I'm going to make the sound effect. If you heard that sound effect, that's what fell out of his robes. He had this thing that looked, it didn't look right. You know, when you, when you see something that doesn't make sense to you and and just for like maybe a two second period, your head is trying to figure this, like, what am I looking? I don't even know what I'm looking at, but you know what you're looking at. Um, This guy had a monstrous monster, monster dog, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. He had a monster dog and he had been performing fellatio on himself. Oh, and I'll be honest with with, with you guys. I'll be, I'll be honest with you guys. You know, I've told this story ever since from Pittsburgh on, like when you're sitting in a surveillance van, you're like, what's the weirdest thing you ever saw? Or like, or what's the most thing that ever made you most jealous? Anything like that. But yeah, so we're, I saw, but but before we did our, our podcast today, last yesterday, I just wanted to see, I want to make sure that I haven't misremembered this story. So I went online and I typed in, <laughs> I typed it in. I hope my, yeah, don't look at my browser for this one. I typed in, uh, can a man form, perform fellatio on himself? And you know what? I was, I was, I was totally justified um, in, in whatever, and uh, in, in, in telling the story the way it is, because according to men's health, and hey, you know, if men's health says it, it can't be, it can't be wrong. 0.2% of the uh, male population uh, in America can actually do that to themselves. So, you know, you don't have to break a rib, I guess you don't have to do anything weird. you like, like a fetishist type thing. You can, and that, but anyway, so that guy sits up. Oh. I know it makes a lot of mental. It, 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 you can't help, but just get I'm the mental. Sorry, but if, you, if you do that, yeah. does it, do you, are you automatically gay then? I mean, how does that work? 
I don't. You know what? I'm not here to judge. I don't. I'm not here to judge. All I can tell you is, I guess I. You know, if I had to, I'd have to say I would probably be homeless too. You know, if I had that going on, I, I might be homeless or at least never leaving my house. I don't know. But but yeah. So that 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 comes out and flops down and and, and what have you. And uh, the business people, and not just the men. I mean, not just the women. The men too. It was like you know those 1950s movie screams, yeah. like the over the top, like from all the old horror movies, like. <laughs> that that's what universally happened to that short, small little crowd of business people. They were nowhere to be seen in about 25 seconds. They were gone and whatever. And you know, the, the guy, the park bench guy, um, he, uh, he reels it in or I'm not sure how that spools it up. I'm not sure what he did to, or, you know, if he had a holster, I'm not sure what he did, but anyway, yeah. So he gets it back in there somehow and gets himself bundled back up and he just goes trudging off. And he, he never did say one like word that you could understand. It was all just like, blah, 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 blah. I mean, just total nonsensical, you know, gibberish. And he just kind of wandered off into the sunset. I guess that's what heroes do. Oh, but geez. yeah, he wandered off into the sunset and, uh, and I'm thinking to myself, huh, I went through, through five years of college and, and, and three and seven years of military. And here we are. <laughs> it was great. It was absolutely great. I would not trade my, my time with oh, the things we saw in Pittsburgh. I got oh, uh, for the, all for the, the stories we've heard. Didn't see that one coming. Nope. Not, I'm, I was thinking about, we're getting <laughs> yeah. to Seattle now. But is this going to air? Is that story? Is this story even going to air? <laughs> oh yes, it is. Yes. Oh yeah. yeah. This is going just, down. This is going to go down. The to names Seattle's. of the innocent will be. Yeah. I'm just sitting here trying to decide which one of you two is the worst. I, I don't know. <laughs> It's up for grabs right now. We're, hey Murph, we're, we're all we're all products of our environment, you know. <laughs> Was it nature, not nurture, or whatever? <laughs> I got you, man. I got you. But, but to shift into the to shift into a cop gear though, um, we uh, there uh, like that same week. I mean, it was like training week as far as like the stuff that you compact in. Um, we one of my other calls for service. I went over the north side for a day, and we were, I was on a night shift. And this is the one where, you know, it's glad it makes you a cop on the other end of the spectrum when it comes to being able to help people. The call was a bar, unknown disturbance. We get to this really ratty bar on the north side. I mean, it was really bad. We go in there and it's an old Korean war veteran. And he was a regular there. The people all knew him and whatever. And he's just, he's just, he's happy drunk. Happiest we older fella. And he just peed all over himself drunk. His pants had fallen down to the ground. So he's, he's basically sitting on the bar stool with his pants around his ankles, no underwear on, wet all around him. And he had no way to get home, and so I was the and I was the young guy. I would have done it anyway. Uh, but yeah, so I uh, I helped him get his pants up, pee everywhere, just pee everywhere. This is before we all had you know, everybody's wearing gloves, and you want you don't want to get on your leather on your leather gloves. Um, but yeah, I helped him get his pants up, and we got him home, got him into his bed. This is back when cops could still do that, you know. Took him home, got him got him up two flights of stairs to a thing, and uh, got him put into bed, make sure he was good to go. Rolled over, called a family member. They came. And we and we laugh, but yeah, you went from 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 you know low gear to high gear. The, the next day, uh, it was another. It was and these streets are, are the, the, where this happened is a really unique name, um, especially for back east. It's called the Mexican War Streets. It's in the north side, very dark, very kind of a dangerous part of the north side. But Mexican War Streets, there again, first week on the job, uh, we're doing foot patrol, and a guy had beaten his his uh, girlfriend with a ball bat, and and had taken off. Well, there we are in the street. It was it was a veteran officer. Um, real tall guy, uh, and then two of us shrimpo, brand new guys. And, and lo and behold, even though that street is very, very dark, the one street light that's really lit up, we see the guy running about probably a block and a half away. So we start chasing it. And like I was, I've always been a runner, uh, even like my little short midget legs. We take off after him. We're closing, closing, closing on him. And then like it's dark, dingy. About a third of the buildings in this area are abandoned, and they're weird because it's like, it's like a neutron bomb hit. 
you can walk into them. The people are all gone, but like the infrastructure is still there. There might be still t- TVs sitting on a stand. Uh, we found a full barber shop in the basement of one with the, with the chairs, everything still there. Like the guy had just, just went and left everything there. But anyway, this guy runs into an abandoned house and we go in, we clear, we, there's a basement. So we had one, one of us, uh, one of my partners watched that basement. We cleared the rest of this two-story house. He wasn't there. He didn't, could have gone out the back. Back door is blocked. So he's down in that basement. We call for backup, and there had been a homicide. There's all kinds of things going on in the zone. They're completely backed up. SWAT was on a call across town, so they couldn't come. So it was us. It was your army of three. And uh, we even called for canine support. No canine support available. So now we're standing there. This, this, this isn't going to solve itself. And so being young and stupid, um, we had our lights off, pitch black in this house. And uh, we got to look at the steps. I saw what they were. I'm like, you know what? I, uh, I'm just going to light in one hand, stinger light in one hand, my little, uh, my little stinger light in one hand, and my, my handgun in the other hand. I'm just going to just stand. So we, our, our plan was, let's stand here for about five. We, we warned the guy we were going to send a canine, and that didn't, that didn't convince him to come up or do anything. So I said, let's just stand here for about 10 or 15 minutes and make no sound at all. And then F it. I'm going to bum rush down those steps with no light. And fall down the ground and, and hope for the best and see if we can, where this guy is. I know it's terrible tactics, but you know, when you're young and dumb and, and whatever, and it's like, we can't be here all night. Well, the truth is that's what happens a lot of times. So we stand there for 10 or 15 minutes to the point where this guy's probably wondering what the hell is going on, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, I knew I had the steps in my head. I had to memorize how they went and they're fairly steep too for those old school steps. I step onto the first step. No problem. I'm going down those steps like right now, like okay. the second or third step just breaks, rotted. <laughs> And, de- and yeah, the best laid plans, man. <laughs> yep. I went down there again. Sounds like somebody you know, like a bad, like a bad Looney Tunes cartoon sound effect. Doo-doo-doo-doo. I get down the steps, boom. I land on the floor and the floor is a typical, like abandoned house with just like plaster falling up from the ceilings. It's all wet and moist and centipedes and bullshit. And, but I, but luckily for me, the way I fell was on my side, handgun still ready to go. Stinger like when you, when you train with your hand, with your, with your light, over your forearm with your gun so you can aim back before the days when you had weapon or uh, weapons mounted lights. And when I turned that light on, cause it was, it was as black as the center of the earth, turn that light on. And there was a suspect and he's, he's deer in the headlights eyes are, I mean like saucers with me. And he had a th- 38 special and it was stainless. So it was glowing 38 special pointing at the ceiling. And right as I had shined that light on him, the, uh, the cartridges were falling and hitting the ground he, in his head, he thought that if I don't get caught with a loaded gun, it'll be better for me. Even though you can't do anything, the gun's going to be there when we get you. The, the rounds are going to be on the floor right next to you and whatever. But that's what kept him from getting shot is, I mean, you can see the cartridges like, like hitting the ground and falling to the ground is he's like that hitting the, hitting the, uh, the ejector rod. And so, and he did everything he should have done. I, I pointed in on him. He did what he's supposed to do. We arrested him and no problems. But that was all. You know, all within the, the first week of uh, I got to tell you, Pittsburgh. the real Rambo would have only needed a knife. That's all he would have needed. He just would have tied a little <laughs> a strip around his bandana. And a red bandana. He needs a rope and a piece of canvas also. That's all. That's uh, Yeah. <laughs> Get your uniform going. Well, hey, because um, <laughs> eventually you do make it to DEA after all this fun. So how long were you on Pittsburgh before the Fed bug finally caught up with you? And and when did you start applying for uh, and for the feds? And then third part. What made you pick DEA? Because you had a lot of FBI influence early on. Yeah, so what I did the I did the shotgun method during that time frame because how hard it was to get into everything. I kind of did the uh, what I consider like the big three. Well, to me, the big three. It might not be the big three to some, but I chose FBI, DEA, and Marshals because I you know my alma mater for my internship, and I loved loved Marshal Service. 
Uh, but yeah, so I, I applied to them when I applied to Pittsburgh. So I've waited a long time. And I think there was somebody else on either on your show or, or what have you, or maybe Murph, it was you. Somebody had said that they thought that their application had probably expired by the time they got the call. And that was the case with me. I was about ready to have to start reapplying, I think. But yeah, so I'd applied for everybody all at once, uh, and uh, including Pittsburgh police. But yeah, so I'm in Pittsburgh and the, the DEA process uh, started. And I, I will tell you that it was never lost on me, even when I got to Quantico. I felt to be privileged beyond belief. I know walking the halls of Quantico as a brand new basing agent trainee, there wasn't a day that didn't go by that I walked around Quantico because we trained and lived with FBI back in our day. We didn't have our separate a separate uh, academy. We stayed there at FBI proper, but never lost. I mean, I, I couldn't believe I was there. I mean, I was, I was, I was, uh, yeah, uh, very humbled. But nevertheless, uh, DEA, the process started, I think it was my second year, second, almost third year of Pittsburgh police. And, uh, the process starts, and they were very methodical, um, and 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 it was just very very professional. I mean, it was impressive compared to Pittsburgh how they did their their shenanigans. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so I start through the process of DEA um, with the interview, and then going down that road. And uh, I'm, I was I I knew I was towards the end of the DEA process. I think the only thing I had left to do was uh, the background check um, and what have you. And I think I had a doctor's I think I had a doctor's physical, and I think there was one more thing after that. And so, but I get a call from the marshal service and they're like, Hey, can you come interview with us? And like I said, with DEA, it was like months and months and months of this and that and that, what have you. They're like, yeah, can he be here tomorrow? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, would you like me to come down? Would you like me to come to the federal building? I mean, I'm, you know, and they're like, no, we need you to come to DC. And, uh, and I'm like, well, and, you know, DC is about a five hour drive, five and a half hour drive on the turnpike from Pittsburgh. But you know, I mean, you never know. DEA might have a hi- hiring freeze you know, you're in the middle of it and now you're waiting another two years. So you take what you can get and then, you know, you can roll it over when you can, if you need to. But, uh, yeah. So I, my, my dad, my good old dad, he was down with the sickness to go on a little road trip. So he came up from Ohio that evening and then we just took off and we got over to DC. Uh, I will tell you that it was very, it was very, um, uh, it's intimidating because marshal service like DEA back in the day, we had our head, they had their headquarters looking down onto the Pentagon. So there's another, you know, kind of younger guy interviewing. I'm, I'm sitting in the waiting room looking down at the Pentagon. I'm like, wow, I'm in the, I'm, I'm in the big leagues. Um, but yeah, so did the interview, uh, get done. And uh, they're like, yeah, when you can get your physical. I'm like, you tell me. And they're like, how about tomorrow? <laughs> so I have to get back to Pittsburgh. What well, just happened? My DEA physical was the same day. So the irony of this was all that time that it waited to go federal. And now my doctor's physicals for both marshal service and DEA are going to be on the same day. And so the, I, I will just tell the funny part of it. You know, I, the DEA, the DEA physical was conducted at a real honest to God, like a contract doctor. I mean, it was like professional. You, you mean as opposed to the army physicals where you came in, they said, bend over, cough. Okay. You got a heartbeat. Good. You're clear. Next. That was it. Yeah. The, the, uh, the DEA physical was actually pretty in depth. Uh, it was, it was, it was oh, wait really, a minute, wait a minute. It was wait refreshing a minute. compared to that. You, you want to qualify what you mean by in depth? Was that the... Or refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> was that the no, as I recall, exam? I actually, well, the other reason I could appreciate the DEA uh, physical is because the, the gal was a female doctor. And she had, luckily for me, she had the whole geisha girl, tiny, tiny little, you know, pinkies going on. So none of the big, you know, meat hook army thing, like experience at the, yeah, at the, at the MEP center in Cleveland. But yeah, so the, uh, the, the morning, so in the morning I had that physical with DEA and it, like I said, it was a thorough physical. 
And uh, so now I'm thinking, I'm going to go to this martial service physical looking like a, like a uh, intravenous drug using, you know, whatever between what they did downstairs with bloop and then with the, with the needle marks. I know they always had trouble finding my, you know, finding my veins to be able to do the blood test and all that. And so I look like I have track marks on my arm from that. So I'm going to go into this other physical looking like I've been around the block a couple of times. But uh, yeah, so the funny thing, though, is I get down there and the, the martial service physical is uh, down at the federal building, and it's with federal occupational health. Well, their equipment is what you expect for a lot of the older government you know, companies. They have really old stuff. And so I go in there, and the lady who was my it – was, it was a nurse that took care of the whole thing. And she was an older lady, kind of gruff and whatever. But I was in uniform when I walked in, so I had to go right to duty from Pittsburgh. And I and you could tell we had we had like we had a rapport going on. I liked her, and we're joking around. So we start down the road. The funny part is I go to get my hearing test. My hearing my hearing has always been kind of like a uh, the one thing I worried about what? getting into. What you think from army from what's that? What'd you say? <laughs> you can do. You want me to push the button? I do a little button push every time you do a little. This is the time you raise your finger to him. <laughs> I'm gonna try to time it. I, I'm, I'm gonna do with you just like I did that that test. I'm gonna just time just, it and try to do like it. another one. Bites the dust. That's, you, yeah. you just t- you just hit it a bunch of times, hoping that the law of averages will work out for you. Yeah, I think I heard something. that's that's pretty much it. What do you call it? Like spray and pray or yeah. something like that. And but. Uh, but yeah, well, you know, well, the army didn't do many favors when it came to being a combat engineer because it, half the time, I mean, all you had maybe was foamies, the little foamy. You could probably file a lot of lawsuits on that one, or whatever. But, but uh, yeah, so if you're lucky, and we were blowing up thousands of pounds of explosive. Like I was in Central America um, on an operation down there, and we're blowing up like half of Hiroshima uh, megatonnage when we do when we do quarry shots. But anyway, my hearing was not was not like it was it was there. It was good. I passed the DEA one with the professional equipment. But yeah, so I go into the marshals when she puts me in that little booth where you, you can hear everything but what you need to hear. I'm hearing my heartbeat. I'm hearing some tinnitus. I think I heard the, uh, I think I heard the, uh, the, uh, the heating system for the building. And she starts doing the test. And I am failing, tragically failing. Because I, I can see her out the window. And the first time, I, she's like, let's start this over again. She does that twice. And then she starts getting the eye roll going and whatever. And, and, and she, but she also looks like she's very sympathetic, like she's feeling really bad for me. And so after about, I don't know how many times we did it. And I know she's retired by now, so she's not going to get in trouble. I would say we're about four or five deep into the retries. And uh, finally, she just says, let's try this one last time. And she gives me the all-knowing look with the eye like, watch me. And I'm like, what? And so I'm looking at her. And then she starts doing, you can't see me on the podcast, but she starts doing the old blink once. <laughs> blink once if you hear it. Don't, I'm not going to blink twice, but when I blink once, you're hearing it. And so that's how the rest of that test went. And I... I uh, went and I uh, I passed swimmingly. <laughs> I did swimmingly on that one with a little bit of help from my friend, and so that was how I passed the marshal service. Well, and for your blood, <laughs> no, at least for the first your, time, yeah. For your blood test, they just punched in the nose, right? That pretty much, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bleed here, Bleed here, yeah. pee here, sign here. Let's go, get out. That's it. But it was a whirlwind after that. They conducted their background check like fast. Like DEA took, I think, probably close to a month or two to finally, you know, get it done. But uh, Marshall Service, I think there, I think it took like two and a half or three weeks, and they were done with the background check. And the next thing you know, I have an academy date down at Fletzy, uh, down in Glencoe, Georgia, and it was off the races. Wow. So what did you do? So I get to I get to Fletzy. Uh, <laughs> so so, so no, let's let's back some, up for a second. So you so you end up on DEA later, but you start off as a U.S. Marshal. Correct. Yeah. So I I get down to Fletzy, uh, and they have a two part program when you're going to be a when you're going to be a deputy U.S. Marshal. You go through the, the criminal investigative phase, which is you may have other people in your class from other disciplines, like from Customs Service or from you know, different other federal agencies that go to Fletzy. 
Uh, and then after you pass that or, the original uh, criminal investigative phase, then you go to martial school, which is the last phase of your thing. Our class had all marshals. So we were going to be all together through the whole thing. So I get down there. I go through about, I think I was there for about a month and a half. We're just about ready to break over into martial school from criminal investigative phase. Um, <laughs> that made me class president. I don't know how that happened. But uh, they made a little short, angry guy a class president. Class president, and then I get the, co- the phone call from uh, from DEA, and they said, "Hey, we we uh, we know where you are, but we thought we'd reach out, let you know that we have a you know class date coming up, and whatever you're interested." And so I didn't want to be a douche, you know. So I said, "Well, can I have like a, a day or two to think about it?" And they're like, "Yeah, just call us back." And the gal was really nice. I mean, very nice. And so I went to see my coordinator, and he was cool. He, I, I we went out in the parking lot to talk about it, and I said, "What do you think?" You know, and he he's like. I don't even know why we're having this discussion. This is an older deputy marshal that they bring back for the academy, kind of like DEA. They bring back veteran agents to help be instructors and to be class coordinators and and all that. He's like, I don't even know why you have to even ask me that question. He goes, I would have done that about if I would been I would have been out of here rolling about probably 15 minutes ago. And uh, but yeah, so we go to I make the decision to do it, and so I let DEA know that we're going to go talk to the class. The guy who's like, I don't know if he had been like a. Um, a chief deputy. I'm not sure what the rank structure was for Fletzy for like the head marshal in charge of the training, but is that guy. All I can tell you about that fella, um, like I said, I've met very few people in my career that rubbed me the wrong way or didn't seem like, you know, like you were brothers, sisters or whatever, but you can tell this guy was a corporate hack, like one of those ones that joints for the wrong reasons and whatever. He had that, that perfect, first of all, he had that perfectly sculpted face that looks like in, in the hair that looks like something from like Mad Men or like that, like a 1950s businessman that has that Johnny square jaw thing going on. Very formal, very, very douchey. This guy, we go in there and he's got the smile that, you know, he's not smiling at you. I mean, even though we tell him what we're going to do and that we need to go ahead and change over from marshals to DEA, you, he smiles, but you can tell it's venom. Like he's, he's like pissed. It's going to cause him paperwork or something. And uh, he goes, well, then let's make that call. So we called DEA and we talked to that gal. And I wish I could remember her name, but I can't. I, I, I think I heard her name several years ago. Other people said she was like an angel walking the earth. Anyway, we call her and I talked to her on the phone for a second and then give her over to that guy. It wasn't speakerphone. He had not think. This guy, even though he's smiling, wants to cut me off in the middle of a pay period. And like, because we were like, right when this is happening, I still had one more week on the, like before the next pay period came. Before you could, in the way that it should have translated was, you get to the end of the pay period, and then that paperwork goes in, and then you go seamlessly to the DEA. It doesn't affect your retirement or leave or anything like that. That's the right thing to do. That's the good thing to do. And to back up a step, I'd even told that man, the guy who's being the douche, and my coordinator, hey, listen, I'll stay here for that last week, and I'll I'll be a janitor. I'll clean hallways. Uh, I, I do dishes, windows, whatever. I don't want to be that guy that leaves out of here. I said, so, you know, whatever it takes to be able to stay on there, I'm happy to, to do whatever, you know, grunt work you need done. Now, that wasn't good enough for him. He was just pissed off that this is happening. So he's talking to her on the phone. You can see that he's like, he's pissed, but he's trying to maintain. And finally, he goes, she wants to talk to you. So she comes back on the phone. And uh, and this is where I realized, you know, I'm joining a really cool, this, I mean, I've been, I've been in cool agencies. This is going to be the, like the ultra cool. She goes, she goes, that guy you're talking to, Fuck him, uh, and I'm like, what? This is, no, before he's like, her, 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 her. There was like very formal, you know, very proper English, like I, almost like spotted tea, sir. Spotty. I mean, it was, you know, and uh, she's like, fuck that. She goes, she goes, you know what? Fuck that guy. She goes, you don't know him anything. Get your gear and leave. Walk out right now. Get in your car and leave, Fletzy. She goes, I've got some things I've got to do to make this right, but I'm going to do them. 
Don't worry about being on their roster. You are now a DEA basic agent trainee. You're on our payroll. You don't owe them anything. Get out of there. Drive home. We'll see you in four weeks. Wow. And so that's how, and, that, and my, my coordinator, we walked out of there and he, he was like, that guy was pretty cool or whatever. And uh, yeah, you could tell he wasn't real happy with, the, with that administrator. But anyway, yeah, left out of there and uh, had a little break and then right off the So your yeah. Marshall's career was, what, two and a half months long, two and a half weeks long? I mean, I'm losing track <laughs> very, here. You did more time as a— Yeah, I would say very, very, uh, very brief. Yeah, you did more time <laughs> yeah. as, a, as a Marshall's intern than you did as a deputy marshal. That's a real marshal. <laughs> I, I really did. I had more action. I definitely had more action as an intern. I didn't see a single wit set shotgun anywhere in criminal investigative phase. Yeah, oh, yeah. What, what class were you in at, at, the, at Quantico? I was in BA 112, which I thought was pretty funny because, well, it was really funny because in the Army, that was my basic training company. I was company. about to say 112, yeah. Yeah, and then when I was in the Ohio Army National Guard, there was 112 Combat Engineer Battalion. So just, I can't play the lottery. I probably should have played that number, probably the numbers with that number. But but yeah, but it ended up being BA 112. What were you, Murph? 53. Hell, you're, damn, you're old. I didn't Five realize that. Third. Chase. As us. Well, hey, I was look. I was looking at some pictures here. Were you by any chance in the academy when uh, the actors from Narcos were there? I was not. Okay, I can't remember what class number it was. I, there's, I got a picture. Of the uh, the guy that plays me is Boyd Holbrook, and he was the class was carrying the flag for um, Don Ware. I don't know if that. I can't tell. Gotcha. What. Our flag. We were carrying our flag for a gal named Carrie Lenz, who had been killed in the Oklahoma City in the in the or in the bombing in that Murrah building. Murrah yeah. building. Murrah Federal yeah. building. Bombing, yeah. Bombing. But yeah. So if if it helps, Murph, I, we we graduated. Um, it would have been in like uh, May May of ninety seven. Okay. Yeah. No. I, like you know what? May of nineteen ninety seven. Um, actually, you know what? I got called and and it was it was a little bit later in ninety seven to come up and be a class coordinator. And I had trials. I had a lot of trials lined up and, and, you know, called, tried to get out of it. And they thought it was a scam. And, you know, the chief operations got to call down and talk to the rack and find out about it. But what I didn't know is that the, uh, um, the SAC for Atlanta was planning to promote me. I got promoted in uh, early 98. I moved down to Atlanta. So, or otherwise, I'd have probably been up there the same time you were. Well, Murph, I can tell you, you weren't a math major because I'm just going to point out something to you. So, <clears throat> when were you in the academy, Rick? 97. When was Narcos yeah. film, Murph? For, uh, it took about I know. I just, it hit me all day when I said that. <laughs> I haven't had a lot of sleep in the last few days. I've been in San Diego. <laughs> You're about 20 years off there, pal. Uh, well, you know, I've got my socks. It's cold here today. i got my socks on. I've only got 10 digits I can use to count on. <laughs> Okay. That's our hey, there's no shame in there's no shame in there's no shame in day drinking. I mean, you know. <laughs> it's five o'clock somewhere. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk now about That's your right. DEA career because I don't want to say you got your career got started off with a bang, but it literally did. It got started off with a bang. Um, you're two weeks into your Pittsburgh thing, and you get you know Donkey Dong, you know King Kong, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 you know two weeks into your job on DEA, man, uh, you face uh, something that nobody wants to face, but it ended up happening to you. Yeah, so it it was um it was it was about uh, I think it was about the week to second week, and, and so actually in DEA we we do have an FT we call it an F field training agent, and so when you first come out of the academy. Uh, for about a about, about a two month period, month and a half, two month period, you have an FTA, and, and a lot of it for us, I think, in the beginning was wasn't so much to be able to be an operator as far as tactically or investi- being an investigator or what have you. A lot of it was because it's just weaving your way through the federal system, learning all the paperwork for for uh, fi- for doing your casework, 
uh, how the courts work. A lot of the things that the, the, the administrative part of DEA is a huge part of that FTA program. But nevertheless, you have an FTA that kind of hangs out, make sure you're doing, he checks a lot, he or she will check a lot of blocks off for your tactics. If you, uh, you do, you try to get a couple undercovers in so they can grade you on that, make sure you're good to go. All the aspects of being a DEA agent is what your FTA looks at within about a two month period and they grade you on that. So I had just, and I had an excellent field training agent. Uh, his name was Brett. Uh, he was a former uh, U.S. Army Green Beret, fifth group, uh, unbelievable gentleman unbelievable operator. He's the guy you wanted with you. Uh, and also he was my size. Nice, nice to have somebody who's actually as short as me that I could pal up with. So, uh, but he was my, he was my guy. I, I uh, was done with the FTA program and like my first case out of probation, uh, had a funny beginning. There was a, uh, a, a cocaine trafficker in Yakima as a gal, uh, kind of a rotund gal, very found out later on, very jovial, very funny. I think one of the things that kind of lends itself to is that you learn that there, there are all different types of, when you say bad guys, you have people that are truly evil and you have the ones that, you know, which want to make money. They would never hurt you or your family and whatever. This guy was one of those ones that, you know, for, except for the fact that she'd done that, you could probably almost been friends with her. She's very, very funny, not malevolent, whatever, but uh, yeah, kind of a rotund gal, jovial. She agrees to deliver two kilos of cocaine over to Seattle out of Yakima and what she didn't know was that she's delivering it to the parking garage of the district of the uh, of the division office. <laughs> you got um, our Seattle our Seattle DEA office um, was it looked like a professional almost like Art Deco building. It was very cool looking. It had a big Tollies coffee in the bottom of it, and it looked like every other building over on Queen Anne's Hill. Very cool looking business type. It didn't look like DEA. And so she agrees to go there. And even the parking garage guy is like a regular contract, like with the, with a smart little uniform and whatever, with like Acme or what have you. And so, uh, yeah, she agrees to deliver two kilos of cocaine <laughs> into the parking garage. She thinks the person she's dealing with is a business type. Dude. And uh, she delivers it over there. She, the guard lets her in. She goes into the deep, dark bowels. It's like five stories down or something. There's like multiple gates. Gets down there, and boom, it happens. And she has a gun on her. Oh. She had a little like a, a little a little handgun on her. Never pulled it. I mean, she gave it up so sweet right, right out of the gates. And she agrees to cooperate right away. And so she ends up being my first CS. And right out of the gates, she says, you know what? We can do a guy. He's capable of anywhere from two to five pounds of meth. And uh, it turned out the guy was a Mexican national. Uh, it was funny because, you know, I know we're going to be talking about shooting, but I'll just go ahead and describe the guy right now. You know, you, when you first start this job, you think of everybody that you're ever going to have to go up against. It's going to be really like bad news. Like we're going to gunfight him. It's going to be a fight to the death. Him trying to get my gun on, the, you know, rolling around in an alley somewhere is like one of those old time, tough looking guys, somebody capable looking. This guy that we're going up against, uh, this foreign national, he looked like if Prince was Hispanic um, and even slighter than how you know, Prince was a very small man, this guy actually looked like a kind of like a, like a Mexican version of Prince, had a little pencil thin mustache, very slight looking, very small guy uh, on the phone would do undercover calls, very effeminate voice. I mean, very effeminate voice, not the guy you think is going to go for the gold. So we get this guy to deliver if two and a half and two and a half pounds is enough for me at this point for what we're going to do with this guy. So we get him to do two and a half pounds of meth. We've done like two or three, four ounce buys, six ounce buys. So we've done a couple other buys. We go to do the final one. Well, we we're, we use a house that had been in before that should have been in before. And we were able to get access to this house. So he felt comfortable there. And so he comes to the house uh, and it, this house has furniture and everything else is where he's been before and what have you. <clears throat> so, he comes, and the way it was going to work was she was going to meet him in this living room, not a very big living room. Be in the living room. He's going to show her the, the dope. They're going to take a look at it real quick, give it a quick look at, 
And then, and then to get her out of that room, because we knew this guy carried guns. He bragged to her every time, whatever she sh- he had showed her that he carried two guns, uh, had a Beretta and a little like Lorsen 380, like a really crappy little, you know, one of those little crappy little Lorsens or not, not a real good gun, but still a little hideout gun. <clears throat> so he, uh, she's going to leave the room to get the money. And then we're going to come around the corner and we're fully decked out. And, and I mean, you guys probably remember this from your younger days when you first start with an agency and you do tactical operations, you're dressed to the way you, everything you have is like black back then, black DEA everywhere, helmet, the whole thing. As you get older in your career, what could possibly happen? Next thing you know, you're down to your body armor and like a bandolier with your ammunition and a ball cap. I mean, with, you know, with whatever on it, but, uh, you know, back in that, in the, in the early days for me, you know, we're, I mean, you wore everything. So it looked like something of a matrix, but yeah, so we're all dressed up. We're in the next room over waiting for this all to happen. And uh, he does, he comes, he shows, shows that you can hear the wrappers and everything on the table. And then, and then my gal gets up exactly, does exactly what she's supposed to do. She goes, let me get the money. She leaves the room and goes back into a back bedroom. And we give her the time to get back there. And she even followed through, even though she didn't have to, because we heard it with the page that she's going to give us. It's like, I'm clear. You're good to go. She does the page and uh, followed instructions perfectly. So I'm the first one out the door of the bedroom. The guy immediately behind me who opened the door was a fellow named Jake, former Border Patrol guy, big, tall farm kid. Jake spoke fluent Spanish. Uh, he'd been Border Patrol before. He's yelling everything you need to yell. You know, Montserrat, Quest to say whatever. He's, he's, he's throwing it all down. This guy gets it all as we come out the door. I come around the corner and I'm carrying a little sawed off, a little Remington uh, 870, like Wilson scattergun technology shotguns that we had. Back then, I don't know who made them, but they were a short, little, nice little shotgun. Come around the corner. Well, I loaded up with deer slugs. Uh, I had the first, the first three rounds were deer slugs and the last three were buckshot. The reason being the way that room was, we couldn't move it around. And I was afraid it, he was going to die for cover behind a couch and I have to shoot through that couch and the buckshot wouldn't have been the right tool for the, you know, for tool, tool for the day. So slugs, but yeah, no, that I got a hand to that guy. I mean, he knew who we were. I came around the corner with DEA all over me. We'd already said, police, quest to say whatever, all that. And, uh, yeah, he comes off the couch with a Beretta cocked and he has it to about, you know, about belly button level coming up with it. And I mean, the door's over here and he's not looking at the door. He's not looking to get out. He's looking to gunfight. And, uh, I remember I, I, I was around the corner. I had one foot off the ground when I, I didn't have both feet on the ground, but yeah, push a trigger on that shotgun and send a, a deer slug right through his chest. And it did exactly what you'd expect a 12 gauge slug to do. It, it, it hit him. It knocked him down so fast that, you know, when you pump a shotgun under duress, it's fast. I didn't even have that shotgun pumped all the way back to being back on target again. And he's already laying with his head towards us, on his back, feet away from us. And he's doing that nerve you know, thing where your arms make the jerky movements or whatever and what have you. So, But, you know, no matter, people always ask, you know, aren't these things scary? They happen very quickly. You don't have time, especially with the training. This is what you do. You know, I mean, some people are different, but uh, I know most of the people I've worked with, you know, you don't get amped up, whatever. But so everything stops for one minute. Brett Parr, who was my field training guy, former Green Bray guy, he comes around me. He had a Colt submachine gun. I had the 12 gauge. We stop. There's gun smoke in the air. There's a tiny little laser beam of light coming through a crack. We had the blinds drawn in that living room, but there's a little, like a little laser beam of light coming down through a little laser show coming through that little beam of light. There's our, there's our suspect on the ground laying there hit with a 12 gauge slug in the chest. And everything was dead quiet after that shotgun going off in the house, dead quiet. And, uh, and, you know, I, I don't think anything really skewed as far as time. Like a lot of times when you get into a critical incident, time either stretches or something weird happens or your hearing isn't right. I, as I recall, it wasn't a whole lot of that. It seemed like real time. But we still stopped for a couple seconds. And during that couple seconds, outside, like I said, dead quiet, you hear from outside the house, 
ching 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 an ice cream truck pulls up <laughs> of all the places in Yakima Washington that an ice cream truck could pull up to track the minute that there's a shooting yeah wow. and so the thing is though we had one one close in surveillance unit and the rest of the guys were all sitting way back it's like yeah hispanic male in an ice cream truck was this guy coming to back his play i mean who knows back his play maybe he's going to be the money guy where he leaves in the ice cream truck with the money i mean you just don't know but yeah but there's there's that and you hear the ice cream truck you know happy ching 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 music out there and what have you so that can sit for a second the guy's staying in the truck we come up on our guy we look down and i mean when you can see carpet through somebody and it was that i remember that 1970s like that yeah, lime shag. green yeah, yeah like burnt orange shag carpet when you can see carpet through somebody you know that you probably used the right round to, to end a gunfight and uh yeah so uh we brett was a, one of his specialties you know, like with green berets they have too uh when you're when you're on an oda or what have you on a team operational team the Green Beret, the Green Berets, they usually are like, they have like two specialties, like one's a primary, like weapons, and then the second one's medic or communications and medic or engineer and whatever. Brett's primary was medic. And this guy ultimately didn't make it, but he survived that minute basically because Brett took an entire beach towel and shoved it into the guy. But uh, yeah, so we get that, the guy, got the guns off the guy. And then we didn't want the other team coming in since we're already fully operational to go check this guy out and we're armed up with long arms and everything else. So this guy's secured on the ground. We got the gun secured. And then we let the team outside know we're coming out to deal with the guy in the, uh, in the, uh, in the, in the ice cream truck. So we storm out that door and that poor guy, that poor guy, he had not, he was just an ice cream truck driver. He had nothing to do with it, but we couldn't treat him that way. So we come out there, we get him out of the truck. We got him on the ground. This poor guy's scared. And he was just an ice cream truck driver that pulled up at the wrong house on the wrong day. Uh, in the aftermath, I think everybody's bought him out. I mean, I think everybody that showed up on the scene, all the uniform cops and whatever, I think that guy went home with no ice cream that day uh, from, uh, from everybody feeling bad for him. But uh, yeah, so that was the that was the first shooting. Well, just just to let you know, we did a story on You Can't Make This Shit Up, and it was a lady in a ice cream truck selling yeah. meth. So it does happen. We do it's have an ice truck. Yeah, an ice truck. An ice truck. So, yeah, but well, that's funny. It's funny you mentioned that we had a we had a gal when we were doing you know f you know patrol work in Pittsburgh in that real bad neighborhood for a couple of weeks. We watched her in a wheelchair in a place she shouldn't have been. She's an old, I mean, an older lady, very very or very very big and whatever in a wheelchair on a corner that's like a gang type you know corner and whatever. So we started watching her from an abandoned house. She was selling crack cocaine out of her wheelchair, like you know, like a Pez dispenser. How you open that little lid on a Pez dispenser and it, it gives you like a little chiclet looking thing and you can eat it and you put the head back down. She had her her wheelchair with a little thing on it, and she had the crack rock, the crack rocks, and there are little individual wrappers up inside that wheelchair. And when somebody come along, she'd pull the little like the little plug on the wheelchair and dispense however many. And that's how she was selling her crack cocaine out of her wheelchair. But you, yeah, they'll find a way. You they'll say find a you way say that it. like it's a bad thing, Rick. Look, it was social security ain't what it used to be. Yeah. I'll tell you one thing. At least we didn't have the foot chaser on the positive. <laughs> well, on the positive side, is there wasn't a foot chase involved in that one. It made it pretty easy. Yeah. <laughs> All I think of is that Seinfeld episode where George Costanza is in that motorized, uh, you know, scooter, and they're on the chase on the motorized scooters. But, <laughs> but you said that was the first shooting. Um, I mean, you were kind of like a ship magnet between uh, Pittsburgh and here. So you had the shooting where you guys got the bad guy, but then the second one, the tables turned on you. 
Yeah, yeah. So that was I. You talked about the shit magnet thing. I know I've accused my mom a couple times of maybe like having if it maybe a gypsy came in when after she had me and I was in that little room where all the babies are in the little incubators mm-hmm. and maybe Curses I got like you. some kind of like yeah. gypsy blood curse, like even evil gypsy blood curse or something. But uh, yeah, no. So the next shooting, it happened almost well, about a year, like a year and one month to the date, almost. And uh, the uh, main main justice, we had Janet Reno at the time. Huh? Oh, bro. And, uh, but they wanted us to do some things on the reservation. And I'll tell you, I felt really bad for the cops. There, there was regular uniform cops out there on the Yakima reservation, and it's sprawling. I think Yakima is the, I think it's either the biggest or the second largest reservation uh, in the U.S. And we had only one, uh, one, uh, one investigator, the federal BIA, you know, Bureau of uh, uh, Indian Affairs. They had one special agent for that whole region. I mean, this guy had to cover, I think, Idaho. Washington and Oregon, just one guy. He's a really good guy too, but you can only do so much. But yeah, we, we end up uh, looking into these guys that were selling uh, dope on the reservation. Turned out they were former members of that American Indian movement. Uh, back in the day, several years before that, they had uh, killed a couple FBI guys somewhere over in, I don't know, Montana or what have you. But anyway, these two guys were known former members of that American Indian movement and whatever, but they were selling and they had the, the, the uniform police, the Indian, the, you know, the Yakima Indian, uh, uh, like uniform police, so afraid they they wouldn't even hardly go on the road. I mean, these guys had weapons. In a time before everybody having AK-47s, these guys, according to our informants, and they end up it was true. These guys had weapons like crazy AK-47s everywhere. Anyway, yeah. So they want us to go hit them. We let Maine Justice know through our ties. This is probably going to have a, a components of violence in it because these guys are known to be violent and whatever. And whoever Janet through Janet Reno or intermediaries, they said go ahead and go do it. And so we went out there, we did some undercovers and then we go to hit that place. And, you know, we, uh, and I remember in the raid van, I tested it's back when the, the weapon lights were still fairly new on your weapon. And, uh, they were, they were incandescent bulbs. They weren't like the LEDs we have now tested the weapon in the car or the light on it, make sure or in, the, in the raid van, everything's good to go. Of course you come from the high mountain desert, sun's like crazy shining into a dark bad guy house and the light popped. The minute we came in, I turned that light on, that weapon light pop. But yeah, we we barely made entry. We made it through a mudroom. And of course, we did our knock and announce and all that. Made it through made it through a mudroom. My partner, Jake, had a shield in front of me. And then and then it was me with a, with a full auto M4. We make it through the door. Um, we go to make a turn into this big great room. We're going to secure that while another guy with an automatic weapon secured a hallway. And then we're going to you know, take our time for the hallway. And uh, as soon as Jake got out there, he got stuck in the hallway. That a bunch of garbage was piled up. He couldn't get into that great room. Jake gets stopped up. And uh, I know like in Pittsburgh, whenever we were like going down long hallways, we'd go boot to boot, my partner and I, where one guy faces one way, their guy faces the other, because you don't know who's behind you, like going up steps in a tenant building. So I just did what came natural. I, I got behind Jake, put my boot up against his, and blocked that hallway until he could move. I didn't want to try to like lean around a corner. If I had to make a shot and make a bad shot, I figured me and my body armor behind Jake is a better option. So I got him, even though it's fatal funnel, you know, middle of the hallway, to me, because I'm right-handed, I couldn't lean around that wall and provide adequate cover for Jake. And also, and also, this plays into it. We had just gotten our new lab vests. You know, all we had was a soft armor from before with no plates. And we finally, because we did a lot of labs, a lot of drug labs uh, back in the nine, back in the nineties. But we got these new vests. And contrary to popular belief, DEA equipment sometimes a long time in coming. Oh, and so yeah. when you get something really cool, you're like, this is great. Uh, but yeah, so I have a brand new. I mean, this vest still had that new car smell to it, and. Uh, so I get into the hallway behind uh, behind behind Jake, and I figure he's going to move, move, move. The minute I get there and I feel my boot touch his, this little short fella, uh, it was one of our main bad guys, 
um, kind of a rotund little guy, Klingon looking kind of dude. He comes running out of a comical, like a kid that can't keep up with his feet. Like when they're running like downhill, the little kid that's like running before his feet is going to fall. You know, he's going to fall down. Well, this guy runs out of a back room like that, like comical, like he's drunk or whatever. He's got his arms and hands in front of him. Like he's trying not to fall down one hand covering the other. Like he's trying not to fall down. I can't see a gun. It's pretty dark. Um, I give him a couple commands as fast as you can. You know, please get down, whatever. He, he, he dives in the air. Like he's a short squatty, a little five foot five dude, maybe uh, fat, but I'll tell you what, he had Jet Lee moves on him. He, he goes across that hallway stumbling and then dives in the air. And as he dives, he moves his hand up from his other hand and he's got a snub nose 357 Magnum. Boom. Instantly fires a round while he's in midair. And that round hit the wall, uh, like right, I think it hit right next to my chest in the drywall of that hallway. Uh, and then the next round he fired as he's, as he's falling through the door, he fires one more. That one hits the wall right next to my head. And I end up getting shrapnel and whatever uh, from that. And I also got uh, part of a round in my vest, like dead center mass right in my vest. Um, we had begged DEA because we did a lot of warrants in, in Washington. I, I, I would say we averaged probably, I don't know, a, a, a dozen a week uh, at, at least because we helped all the other departments out. But because of all the entries, we wanted some type of eye protection. And, and the, the, the DEA, the sack over there, is, I think his comment was, you kids watch too many movies or something. But we didn't get the, we didn't get the eye protection. I will tell you, moving ahead a bit, after getting shot and getting strapped on the line, wearing an eye patch for a couple weeks, they got us the eye protection from this one. But yeah, so back to the shoot. Uh, the, uh, the, I, I, I know I've been hit because I can't see out of my left eye. It's all mucked up and whatever, but I know where that guy's going to shoot at me from again. Turns out he shot a third round, but that round went into the door jam and then kind of got stuck in the, in the studs. But, uh, I knew where he was going to, I just knew he was going to roll back out because I would roll back out and launch the rest of them. So I, I point, I point in right where he, right on that corner of the wall. And I have to add too, there were no other houses in vicinity. We're up in the high mountain desert. These people had no neighbors. There were no children. There were no innocents in this house. It was a bad dude house. The closest other house was miles away. So knowing that, but anyway, yeah. So I, I aim right for where I know he's just going to roll out of there. And I just, I just go, I just go to town and I gave him full auto and I, I shoot, a, I shoot, a, I shot a lot of full auto, both short bursts and long bursts in practice years and years and years of it. Um, and so I aimed in, I got on him and it was really, the burst was like maybe four inches, five inches tall and it was a Z like Zorro in the wall, but I just zipped him on that wall where I thought he was. And luckily for that guy, what protected him mostly was an old, uh, like one of those steel claw bathtubs. You know, the bathtubs is old school with a big claw feet on them, whatever, made out of like, I don't know if it's made out of like galvanized steel or something. But he took one round across the boobs, uh, well, moobs, man boobs. He had like, kind of like, you know, being a little bit chubbier, he had like the, the man boobs. And so nothing vital, just a bunch of like, you know, baby fat, whatever. But uh, yeah, so one of the rounds went through. Uh, that took some took the spunk out of him, um, and what have you. But went full auto. And then one of the things that Quantico, Quantico is very good about when they're training, we have role players, we have simunitions, we shoot each other up in, in like what you'd call like the shoot houses and the raid houses, simulate real operations. Even the rest out on the road, they have real role players and actors. But this is one of those ones where they would have had to have a pretty big budget to be able to simulate this one. So full auto, blah blah blah. The entire hallway fills up with drywall uh, dust. So you can't see six feet down the hall. The smoke alarms all go off. So now that's all screaming. And then you know you've hit pay dirt because from the back room, it's it's a man's voice, but it's like screaming like in falsetto, like, ah, I mean, just like really high pitch. You, you definitely you hit something. And, and it, luckily, I mean, like once in a while, the good guys get lucky. 
we had a state trooper down the road from our house blocking off an intersection because they're not allowed to come on the reservation to do enforcement, but he's allowed to like block off a road because you're basically like in a foreign country almost when you're on arrest. But we had a state trooper about 150 yards down the road in an intersection. And it's all high mountain desert. So he's out there in the clear 150, 200 yards away. Well, aside from hitting the guy that was in, you know, the guy that took the shot, there was um, in the back room, you could tell what this fellow had done. He had picked up a 300 Winchester Magnum bolt action rifle. The round was almost into the chamber, like the bolts forward, getting ready to be racked down, scoped rifle, and you could look right out the window and see that trooper down there 200 yards away. And 200 yards is nothing for a 300 Wow. It doesn't even drop. Yeah. But luckily, well, yeah, and luckily, the only round that went into his room, because he's in the room behind that bathroom, everything else got stopped by the tub, um, by a big oak cabinet. One round, one, one, one round went all the way through everything. And then, and you could have been, you could have been an I, you could have been the Irish Republican Army with 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 somebody that you wanted to kneecap with a pistol sitting tied up in a chair in front of you, and you had had him, had him hold still, don't move to make that kneecap shot. But that round went through both of his kneecaps, went through both knees like he'd meant to do it, and that was the instant gratification of the screaming where you knew you hit something. But uh, yeah, went, that that round went through both of that guy's knees. He folded up like a deck of cards and whatever, and he was more than happy to crawl out to us. Um, which is, I mean, like one of the scenes from a zombie movie where the zombie's coming at you because he can't use his back legs or whatever, they're gone or they're whatever. He'd come crawl up that hallway to us when we called him out. But uh, in the end, yeah, we it uh, we went through the rest of the house, had people hiding. There were a couple other bad guys that tried to hide under stacks of clothes and what have you. And you see a, like a trembling stack of clothes and there, you know, there's somebody in there. But uh, that, was the, that was the second one. I survived it just fine. I had an abrased cornea, I think, or something. It wasn't a permanent deal. Uh, healed within a week or two. It's like scratchy. It felt like if you'd, if you'd scratch your, you know, scratch your eye pretty bad. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so that was the second. Hey, Rick, we're going to do something we haven't, this is truly something we haven't done before. We've brought people back to say, well, we've only brought one person back mm-hmm. and that was Mundo, a Mexican mafia guy. You've got so much stuff. What we're going to do is we're going to make this part one because in part two, there's some really good stuff. We've seen the picture. How, just let's not go into the story, but just tell, how many pounds was that grizzly? Probably about 750, 800 pounds. So we have a grizzly. Damn. <laughs> Damn. He's a refrigerator, basically a, fridger, a refrigerator with hair, with hair and teeth and claws. Yeah. So we, we got a grizzly story. We got stories about St. Croix because you go from one extreme to the other, my man. You go from hanging out in beach shorts and thongs and, you know, flip-flop sandals and everything else in St. Croix to you go to Alaska. Um, so we're going to have to, we're going to have to get into that. So what we're going to do is we're going to make this, we're going to bring this to a close right here that we'll make this part one. And then part two, we'll start off. We're going to start off with the grizzly story. Cause I've seen the picture, Murph's seen the picture. We want to know how, how you did it. <laughs> I mean, this, let's, let's save it for the part two, but yeah. I'm telling you, when you see this picture, if you were, you talk about, remember the guy that had the doo-doo in his pants? I, I want to know if you had doo-doo in your pants after this one. So, but don't tell anybody that's our yeah. tease. We're going to save this for part two. So uh, we're not saying goodbye right now, but what we're going to do is say stand by because this is the end of part. So we have part one and two of part one, and then we'll have part three and part four of the next episode. So don't go anywhere. You guys hang on. Everybody else stay tuned for the debrief. Can you believe we haven't even got to the a lot of the good parts yet? <laughs> oh my gosh! I mean, the, the guys out there, he took a round to the chest. Thank God he had his, his bulletproof vest on, saved his life. Um, Rambo, oh, yeah. you Rambo's know what? Tough. 
He gives a whole new meaning to Donkey Kong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not going there. <laughs> oh my God. I did not, I got to tell you, did not see that one coming when he just went. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that big, and then, but his moose call, though. I enjoyed his moose call. <laughs> <laughs> and Rick, thank you for doing that, brother. <laughs> hey, well, look, uh, there's still a lot more to come. So next week we start off with the Grizzly story and St. Croix, and we get into uh, some pretty wicked stuff, including uh, some attempts on people's lives. I mean, th- you would think mm-hmm. nothing happens down in St. Croix. Uh, just you hang on, friends, because I, we're going to disabuse you of that notion that St. Croix is this peaceful little island mine with nothing going on because there was shit going on. But Absolutely. we're going to find out about that next week. All right. So thank you, guys. Everybody hang tight. This is the end of part two, and we will come out with part three next Monday. But thank you guys once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes. 